When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the Library Science Channel of New Books Network. My name is Jen Hoyer, and today I'm speaking with Damien Sejoyner, author of Against the Carceral Archive, The Art of Black Liberatory Practice, published by Fordham University Press in 2023. Against the Carceral Archive is a meditation on the carceral carceral archival project, offering a distillation of critical, theoretical, and activist work of prison abolitionists over the past three decades. Working from collections at the Southern California Library, it builds upon theories of the archive to examine carcerality as the dominant mode of state governance over Black populations in the United States since the 1960s. Damien Sojoyner is an associate professor in the Department of Anthropology at the University of California, Irvine. Damien, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you, and thank you so much for having me. I greatly appreciate it, and uh, it's great to be with you. Yeah, and, and it's a welcome back. I know you've you've done this a few times. Um, so before we start talking about this book, do you mind sharing a little bit with listeners about your background, where you grew up and went to school, and what brought you to the work you're doing as an anthropologist? Sure. Um, so I grew up in Southern California, excuse me, in L.A. County, so the the region where the book sort of takes place in, in, in a sense. Um and I went to school, let's say that I went to high school at Long Beach Poly High School, um, which uh, my sister and I joke that uh, people who graduate from there have a irrational sense of pride uh, in that school. <laughs> so I went to uh, Long Beach Poly High School. And then for uh, undergrad and uh, master's, I went to Stanford. And then for grad school, went to the University of Texas at Austin. Um, and that's at, at Texas is sort of where um, I was formed to become an, an anthropologist. Um, up to that point, I had a little bit of a distorted view, understanding, or maybe I didn't. <laughs> maybe I had the right view in it at Texas. I sort of got trained in a certain way um, of, of what an, an anthropologist was. But the training there was was very critical um, in sort of forming my uh, critical knowledge base, I guess to, to say. Um, one of the key um, aspects of the training was uh, to have a particular radical perspective on things. And when, when I say that, the, the radicalness of it was um, literally like the, the mathematical concept, which is to, to get at the root of it. Um, and so it was constant digging, 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 um, and to sort of uh, begin to understand that things that may seemingly be as such on the surface actually are much more complex. Um, and, and as an anecdote, I remember one of the, um, alumni 
coming back and uh, to, to one of our grad seminars and talking about the research in the Dominican Republic and them telling us that on the surface, if you talk to people, um, no one would say that they're black. Right? They're like, oh, no, 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 I'm black. And in and, and large part because in, in, in the DR, there's several different racial categorizations. But if you actually spent time with them and looked at how they engage in the world and how they spoke to their friends, Every, is blackness all over the place, right? Like, and so it's you know it's it's beginning to reckon with with those those type of things, right? So, getting beyond the the, the superficial to, to a certain extent, or even understanding why is it that people are saying X, Y, and Z, um, and then having um, uh, a both like nuanced uh, read of what's going on, so not being disrespectful of how people understand the world, um, but then also adding trying to add a level of complexity uh, to, to what's happening and what's going on. Um, and one, one of the, I think the, the critical aspects of the training process was that oftentimes um, traditional ethnography, so sort of like in, in the, the olden days of ethnography, painted a picture of Black people sort of as static characters. Um, and to both in, in an aid to, to doing away with that, but then also pushing the, the discipline in a different direction at the same time. Super, thank you. Um, and so then turning to this new book, Against the Carceral Archive, I would love if you could share a little bit about first, you know, what you're talking about when you discuss the carceral archive and then how you situate this concept within dominant Western epistemological condition or traditions. Sure. So I, um important to me are three different sort of pathways to understanding the archive in particular for uh this this book and, and the research <clears throat> uh prominently is the work of um anthropologist michelle rolf trio and his conceptualization of an archive as being a key strategy sort of built by the state to deploy ideology via myth-making narratives that in turn um, transform into history and state policy, right? Um, and so he, he, he talks about how these processes attempted to diffuse power um, both by generating the state on one hand, right? But then importantly, also silencing the realities and lived experiences and truths of individuals and communities uh, that were perceived to be a state um, a threat against the state. And so uh, in, in in this manner, the the sense of the archive is that the if you could think of like a the state archival me mechanism is to uh, is to develop a particular consensus around myth making processes. Um, and so if anything that goes counter to that would be deemed to be heretical um, or uh, needed to be erased, put down, things things of this nature. Uh, and so you, you can see then that importantly, as a sense of propaganda, the, 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 their, their key would become like state structures that um, fulfill this mission to disseminate this archived material, such as schools, medias, um, and, and the day-to-day -day sort of workings of the state bureaucratic process. Mm 
So I say that's that, that's the first. The second um, is the work of scholars such as Sadia Hartman, Cheryl Hicks, Sarah Haley, Elsa Barkley Brown, um, who have done such a great job of um, uh, focusing on the silences that have been uh, intentionally um, made by state archival processes and exploring what those silences are. And both in that exploration is naming those silences, but then also looking to see what the lived reality of those silences holds um, as well. And that um, in of itself has been very helpful for me um, in a sense, because so much of what um, of, of the research that I've done over the past 15 years has been around particular forms of Blackness that get made illegible or illegitimate. And it's important to begin to figure out ways to both understand what's being said. Oftentimes that gets labeled, those, those truths get labeled as conspiracy. Those truths get, get labeled as um, uh, fantasy or just, you know, plain lies. Um, but then once you begin to um, sort of formulate a concrete narrative of what has happened that counters what you think is the quote unquote truth, um, it's heavy, right? And and what you do with that heaviness is sometimes hard because you have to figure out how to make this legible um, for people because in, in most instances, as I said before, um, the lived reality of black people has been made illegible. So how, how, how can you make this real uh, for people? Um, and then uh, last, I would say, and I was pushed, uh, thankfully, uh, by my good friend, Orasami Burton, um, to look into uh, the work of archivists um, uh, who have done uh, a tremendous amount are understanding the complexities of the archive uh, itself. Um, and in particular, I hope you don't mind, I'm, I'm gonna read a passage uh, from Tanya Sutherland, uh, who has done a lot on the carceral archive. And if you just bear with me just one second. Okay. Um, and uh, uh, she writes, uh, the carceral archive represents, quote, the history and memory of human existence that has been formed by and or bound to captivity, ownership, domination, control, imperialism, colonialism, hegemony, force, conformity, and white supremacy. And that was very, um, uh, uh, what's the word, like in, in terms of it being important for me to grapple with that it's um, the expansion of this notion of the archive doesn't necessarily exist within this particular moment um, per se, but has a longer history. But then how do I understand place um, what's happening within sort of this era of late capitalism um, within the, the, the larger, broader span of archival violence sort of writ large? And that was very helpful for me to begin to sort of pinpoint um, uh, this, this sort of like um, uh, understanding of 
archival violence as being uh, made and remade oftentimes in reaction to the threats against it at the same time. Uh, and I and I think, it, you know, it, it also would be very um, important to then um, understand those three points in, in, in order to, to answer your last question there um, about the dominant Western epistemological traditions. Um, to, to understand that uh, within this context of late capital, the dominant modality of governance have been, has been warfare, in particular, domestic warfare in, in the U.S. And this this was very, in, in terms of my understanding of this, it came from last um, scholars who have written extensively about this, such as Troy James, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, uh, or Sami Burton, who, who I mentioned before, Dylan Rodriguez. Um, and importantly, um, I, I relied upon the analysis of the state from Cedric Robinson, who uh, discussed that the very basis of Western ontological renderings of the state itself was a governing entity undergirded by war. And so once that becomes the, the basis of it, um, of the state process, of how the state forms from the very beginning of this construct of the state, then it's it's a matter of beginning to map out these modalities that sort of change over time. Yeah, thank you. Um, thank you for that like very clear explanation of all the threads you're weaving together in this book, because I really appreciated all the different um, things that are that are woven together in um, the the conversation that you bring forth, and you also explained in the introduction to the book that you're relying on some of the radical praxis you found in collections at the Southern California Library, uh, which is an archive located in LA. And so for listeners who aren't familiar with SCL, could you speak a little bit about what it is and what kinds of collections uh, it cares for? And then also maybe about the the statement on fugitive archives that you included in sure. your introduction. Yeah. Sure, sure. So the, the, the book came about because of the relationship that you mentioned with the Southern California Library, which uh, started for me in 2009. The library has been around long since that uh, time period. So the library was uh, formed in the 1950s by Emerald Freed, uh, who was at the time a member of the Communist Party. And this was during the height of the Red Scare of McCarthyism. And so uh, important to him was to begin to have more or less like a, a way station uh, for people's materials who were being thrown into exile, right? So either they left or they were being placed in prison. Um, and so uh, that sort of was the, the impetus uh, of that. Um, and so he uh, Freed spearheaded a campaign to collect and organize uh, as much that he can get um, to put into this building uh, that, that he was able to uh, purchase. Um, and since then, um, there's been, I believe, I may be off on numbers on this, but I believe it's been four or five directors of the library itself. Um, and uh, its holdings span the gamut. So you have the LA chapter of the Black Panther Party uh, newspapers are there, the California Eagle, um, which is a um, black newspaper is there, but you also have the 
convenings of the International Oil Workers Union's um, holdings are there. Um, you have collections of, of uh, faculty members uh, who are there from various college campuses around the world. Um, you have oral histories of people who have lived in, in the neighborhood. Uh, the Southern California Library is located um, off of Vermont, probably about, I would say, four, five miles south of USC's campus, about six miles south of downtown LA. But it's, it's sort of in the, the hub of what was Black Los Angeles um, as well. The, the, the demographics of the area has changed, but the collective memory of, of what the area really hasn't um, that, that much at all. And under the stewardship of the current staff, um, the Yusuf Omawali and Michelle Wellesling, the library has done a lot to um, expand its reach within the broader neighborhood. Um, it's always been sort of like a place, like a, a scholarly place for a long time, but people in the neighborhood um, really didn't know what was going on in there. And they've done a lot to change that. So a part of that is holding political education workshops in, in the neighborhood or just opening the doors so people could come and like just rest, right? Because it's um, the, because of the, the way that the state has structured life in the area, day-to-day -day living is not easy um, at all. And so sometimes you just need that, right? You just need a place where you can sit down, ease your mind, get some food, and then keep on pushing. Other times it's people bringing in their kids to do homework. And at the same time, you still have uh, scholars coming in of, of all stripes, right? Um, who, who are coming in looking for information um, as well. And so uh, for me, it, um, some of the, well, not some, all of the archival renderings from the book come from the collections at the Southern California Library. Yeah, thank you. Oh, I'm sorry. And you, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah. I completely, <laughs> you asked the question and I glossed over it about Fugitive Archive. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sorry about yeah, that. Yeah, you can talk about that. Yeah. Sure. So I'll, um, let's see, I think I, I can read from uh, two of the passages um, from the statement. So the one is the opening passage, which is, we are a fugitive archive, an acknowledgement that we are unprofessional, lack capacity, illegitimate, with no histories worth preserving. Um, we have already been forgotten. Our invisibility is threatening. There is strength in this position of dismissal. And so <clears throat> that is one of the, the, I think, the things that Yusuf and Michelle have always sort of um, made readily apparent to try to sort of go against this idea of, for lack of a better term, the capitalization of archival collections as some sort of um, money-making enterprise on one hand, but then also what that does to prevent people from actually accessing um, these collections as well. And uh, importantly, it is sort of driven uh, home again and again that um, nothing is permanent at all, right? These things change constantly. And that change is actually a good thing. Um, and just because something is here in the holdings, just because these collections are here, this is not like the ultimate truth, right? Like you, you, you read it, you, you understand what's going on. Um, but also that there's a, a key insight 
uh, into uh, you have to understand the, the broader picture of what's happening um, and not let sort of like one thing uh, dictate or dominate what is the supposed to truth, right? And in, in many respects, that goes against the idea of knowledge formation um, because so much of knowledge formation is built upon this idea of like, this is the truth and we're going to build from here and everything else sort of like uh, expands uh, moving forward. Um, and then uh, uh, another uh, passage, um, let me see if I can get it here. Uh, Fugitive archives are not just a people's history of the same country, but a movement against the possibility of a country itself. And so I think that's uh, very important because it pretty much situates um, the, the, the notion that many of these collections are actually trying to undo the major tenets that built up the state, that build up nationalism, which then leads to the development of these forms of violence that get reproduced as the state is reified. And so if you have that sort of going into it, then you begin to read these collections in a much different way. Um, and that was very informative uh, for me, both to understand the logic of carcerality, not just something that's a United States-based issue, but in fact, uh, is it has a, in a particular international dynamic that must be understood, both in terms of how state power works, but then in order Excuse me. Um, at the same, uh, understanding that the organizations who are wrestling against these things also didn't see this as an issue being based within the United States, which then gets us sort of to this dimension of warfare uh, as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so then your book explores five different themes that you identified in the collections at Southern California Library, and and you talk about their relationship with the Carceral Archive Project. So I thought we could start with the the theme of policing, um, and I'd love if you could talk about what, what some of the archive material archival materials were that helped you explore the carceral archive of policing and police reform, and how is the framework of the carceral archive useful for more clearly identifying both the evidence and impacts of policing? Sure. So I I, I think. One of I was I was trying to think of an anecdote from from the text and from the collections as well, um, and I think one of the best ones I think we'll 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 see we'll see how it works is uh, is from the the aerospace corporation, and so that that chapter that you're referencing um, opens with a sort of an overview of this document, um, and the aerospace the aerospace corporation. Is it's a I don't think it's that well known outside of the defense sector, um, and and I say that that there's there's other corporations such as Lockheed Martin, Boeing, which of course are much more famous slash infamous um, in, in terms of of what it is that that, that they do and and their um, direct link to warfare um, as well. But the the aerospace corporation. Um, serves as a conduit between the sort of like the official um, national state process and local state processes um, as well. And what what that looks like um, is that the Aerospace Corporation um, conducted a study uh, or what, what they would call a report on why it was that you had 
um, uprisings and, and un unsettling sort of activities that were going on in, in the throughout the 1960s um, in, in several um, key cities throughout the United States. And one of the um, key takeaways was this idea um, of crime and sort of like what, what was needed was a strong presence to prevent crime from happening. Um, and that report is very important because then that's going to affect policy in terms of how money gets kicked in based upon what the report findings were. Um, and so from that, um, the LAPD and several other local police agencies were then able to use the report as justification for why they needed to bolster uh, their whole like sort of system of being. Now, as all that's going on, of course, what's important to know um, is that you have organizations um, in, in particular, so since I'm looking at Southern California, who are arguing for the exact opposite <laughs> for happening, right? So they're saying that the reason why, in fact, one of the reasons, not the reason, but one of the reasons why um, that you have these uprisings is because the police are here in the first place. And their understanding of the police goes beyond sort of like uh, what more or less now gets understand of as police violence, um, police harassment. Rather, th there was an intimate connection in particular with uh, organizations such as COPPA, which is the Coalition Against Police Abuse, um, which is an, an understanding that the police are there to do the bidding of capital. And so the the reason why you get sort of thrown out of your apartment when you, when you can't pay the rent isn't the cops but the cops will then show up because of the bidding of capital to then take you away and either put you in jail give you a fine so on and so forth right but we have to undo the this this notion of the police in order to weaken the sort of strength and the power of capital and that to me was very important in large part because a lot of the discussions that have sort of permeated since roughly, I would say that 2010s, it's been around for a long time, right? But as, as you mentioned, this notion of police reform um, in light of the events that, that have taken place over the past 15 years have completely done away with this, um, in fact, who is uh, putting the cops into motion and and sort of the focus has been solely on this sort of spectacular violence um and so rather than sort of just stop at this idea of um uh there's some sort of boogeyman in the forest that's making all this happen it was important for me to understand what are the mechanizations that trigger one thing leading to another thing leading to another thing and that's clear um, and, and why I have a um, in the book a, a heavy emphasis on state structures because all of this is being meted out by the structures of the state which provide um, legitimacy for governance. And so when you see a report that looks official that comes from the aerospace corporation, it's like, oh, okay, these are the reasons why we need more cops. All of this sort of all of these state structures are put in place in order to make real, right? And this becomes part of that archival process in and of itself, right? That the people's lives, their ways of being become archived according to the needs and demands of the state. And so 
the the collections that are in the Southern California Library that talk about police and police violence begin to undo that and show a whole different other lived reality. Yeah, absolutely. And then one of the other topics that you explore in the book is environmental instability. Uh, and I'd love if you could talk a little bit about what types of archival material you found that made really clear the connections between environmental exploit exploitation and impacts on Black communities. And how does this material provide a picture of community organizers connecting environmental issues with militarism and then with this carceral archival project? I thank you so much for asking this question. And the, the reason why is because throughout by the, the Black Panther paper, the Black, excuse me, the Black Panther Party newspapers, Copper Collection, Mother's Rock, um, several different holdings at, at, at the Southern California Library, there's an extensive amount of information about the political economy of oil. Um, and, and oftentimes, when we think about Los Angeles, we don't think about oil at all. We sort of think about the beach, the entertainment industry, right? But LA is, it's in Southern California, sort of as a whole, is a major hub of international oil exploitation. And so, um, so much of what was or what is in the collections just doesn't stop of, at, in LA, of course, but it begins to, to have this larger expansion of what, what are the ties to shale oil in Southern California and the Niger Delta? What is the response by the state to then kick in power to make sure that this exploitation can take place? So that if there's a state funding of militarism in the Niger Delta in order to remove people from their land to then drill oil wells and pipelines in the Niger Delta. That exact same process we have to understand is happening in the United States, but we wouldn't discuss it on those same terms. And so what the, the um, organizations were adamant about is that the same ways in which you discuss militarism in other countries in order to justify capitalist um, forms of, of exploitation in the sense the disruption of both people's lives, but importantly, the environment and the effects on the environment, you have to do the exact same things here in the United States. So if we understand um, militarism uh, to be sort of a certain thing abroad, what does that look like here? And it's, it becomes clear here that it looks like the formations of prisons, the formations of um, the need to have cops and police, and then also the propaganda that goes along with that. And uh, the propaganda, of course, is not just the need to have cops and police, but the propaganda also is why oil is so important, why in this notion of, of energy efficiency, which then begins to uh, erase the sort of um, understanding of what life was like prior to that in, in, in the region. And then once that becomes sort of substantiated, um, then the state can do the dirty work of, of, um, of using people's lives uh, as rationale for further exploitation. And as, as what I mean by that is, um, I was telling you earlier that, that I grew up in Southern California and, and I went to school in Long Beach. In the area where I grew up, I grew up in a city called Carson. The nickname for Carson is 
carcinogen in large part because it's pretty much built on uh, reserves of oil waste. Um, and then the many of the neighborhoods are right next to huge refineries uh, as well. And of course, the, the planners for the cities knew what was there and they knew what was next to. But this um, the, the need for constant growth then in terms of buying homes, selling homes, the, 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 the exploitation of land supersedes all of this at, at the same time. So you can see how um, the understandings of community organizations who are watching the rates of cancer and Black neighborhoods explode is intimately then tied to this logic of an expansion of a carceral enterprise, which demands to have the the sort of the, the right to that land. And what I mean by that is that you cannot remove people from the land, drill in that land, and then build homes on that land if you don't have the heavy hand of the state and the formation of the cops to, to do the bidding, just as the exact same thing would happen in the Niger Delta uh, as well. Yeah, absolutely. And um, and so then, I mean, I think this this relates to the things we've already talked about, but I wanted to highlight that political education was a thread that I was really excited to see emerge in um, in a lot of the chapters in this book. And so looking specifically at health and safety, which is another theme you discuss, what kinds of records does the carceral archive create about health and safety in Black communities? And then what kind of archival material did you find from Black radical organizers to support political education as a, a really key tactic for finding alternatives? The key is, is study. And that is made known again and again. So in addition to the documents that are in the the, the, the collections that sort of um, provide the blueprint of the state, there are all these notes about meetings that were taking place and how to strategize um, for, okay, so this is happening. We, we need to meet here to talk about uh, this occurrence that just happened yesterday because it was something brand new. So that's so that's on one hand, but then also importantly, um, the notion that uh, we need to make sure that we have a full understanding of what it is that we're up against uh, as well. Uh, it became very clear that the state was studying these organizations as well, and so uh, they they very much understood that um, in order to counter what was happening. Uh, from the state, because many times the state was trying to react to the actions of these organizations, that the state, I mean, that the, the organizations had to have a full sort of body of knowledge as to what it was that the state was doing, because oftentimes the state was using provocateurs and, and things of that nature. You know, so in one instance, how do you counter that, if at all, right? Um, but then importantly, um, this goes back, to, for example, to a conversation about the Niger Delta, there has to be a full understanding of what what exactly is shell oil like what is this enterprise where you know not just in terms of like the business but what are the connections that shell has at different layers of the state what are the connections that shell has in different countries so so that you have a full picture of what exactly it is that you're going up against importantly because oftentimes um these corporations may be funding, for example, seemingly a benevolent philanthropic group that is handing out money to do X, Y, and Z. If you don't know 
that this corporation, in fact, this is the sort of soft arm of, of, of that, then in fact, you're in many ways going to reproduce that same violence if you're not careful with what it is that this corporation is trying to have you to, you know, to do and then lead you down a path that um, makes your, your end goal impossible. So, so, so that's on one hand, right? I think second, um, it's also to understand that the state will put in place um, models, you could call them reform models, that seemingly are doing what the demands of organizations want to do, but not understand that it's something completely different. And in particular with healthcare, that was pretty obvious um, because there was these demands that were made um, in, in particular area called Watts of of um, LA for a particular type of healthcare setup, and um, th it, this was this was articulated again and again in uh, the Black Panther uh, Black Panther Party newspaper about what it was that that should that should look like. It should be community um, control over that, uh, and that the the people, the residents should be able to identify what doctors that they wanted and what type of healthcare systems put in place. All right, fast forward to 1980s, uh, the city agrees to put in something similar, but only after it trains these doctors itself, there's no sort of input from the, the city as to what that's gonna look like. The Black Panther Party had made these overtures to um, government agencies in China of trying to figure out if they could replicate their own models. The, the city of Los Angeles sends these doctors over to China. Like all these things are models, but it completely removes the radical politics that, that were inherent because at, at the end of the day, the healthcare system that was being put in place was an attempt to dismantle the logics of capital. Um, which was that healthcare should not be based upon this notion of monetary sort of like need, but that it should be a human right. Well, the implementation of this new system completely uh, removes that aspect of it, right? And then allows the basic system that, that we know today to be put in place. And then within another 10 years, the whole program is gone. It's been dismantled. And you can understand why, because there, for, from the beginning, there really was very little community involvement in it. So when it gets dismantled, it's not as if people feel like they have an ownership of it in the first place. And so they're, they're, the going back to this idea of the study is that you have to understand that um, these models that are put in place that actually are an attempt to replicate um, what's happening or what's, what's being demanded rather from organizations themselves uh, if if you're not very careful and attuned to the politics, not only will that particular um, demand be erased, but within 20 years, the whole notion of it will be gone as if it never existed in the first place. Definitely, yeah. Um, and there are a lot of other great themes in this book. I hope folks um, pick pick the book up and, and read the rest. Um, but I I don't want to take too much more of your time today. Um, and I just want to, before we wrap up, give you some space to share whatever you're working on next. Um, I'd love to hear if you have new projects that have come out of this book or if there's anything you know completely new and different that you're working on now. 
Sure. Yeah. So, okay. So first I would say definitely check out the Southern California library. Um, and then maybe there's a way I, I can send you a link to the website. If you can go out maybe with the show notes or, or something like that, that'd be awesome. Um, and great. Uh, and for projects I'm working on next, it's going in a somewhat of a different direction, which is um, looking at space. Um, uh, and, and then and when I say space, I mean, like, uh, I guess this is going to sound sort of like very basic, but outer space, right? So talk about like the stars, the moon, like this, like that kind of space, not space in terms of like space and place. Uh, and connections uh, to notions of Black culture representations uh, of space, mostly coming out of like music um, as well, right? So uh, how people um, within Black neighborhoods, Black artists, uh, begin to formulate notions and ideas of being uh, around their music on one hand, right? But that music is inti intimately tied to who they are as sort of people and beings to uh, an entity that's greater than this physical presence uh, as well. So it's just in, in the, I'm, I've just started this, so it's going to be a long while. And in five years, what I just said may not even <laughs> matter at all. I may find something completely different. <laughs> there still might be space, but it's not like what I thought it was going to be. <laughs> uh, but yeah. but yeah, but but that's where I think it's going uh, right now. <laughs> Super. That sounds that sounds really neat. I mean, you have to start somewhere. Um, that's right. <laughs> sounds, sounds interesting. Well, thank you so much. Uh, and once again, I've been speaking with Damien Sojoyner, author of Against the Carceral Archive: The Art of Black Liberatory Practice. My name is Jen Hoyer, and you've been listening to New Books Network.